Hey, loyal listeners, just a few announcements before this week's episode of the Bebop Beat. We will be taking a short break for the winter holidays, so there will be no new audio on New Year's Eve. We'll be back January 7th with Callisto Soul. In the meantime, please check out our brand new store. Bebopbeat.threadless.com has merch starring our Corgi mascot. Our other designs will let you declare yourself Team Sword Boy or Team Sad Boy, or just pay the howdy toll. Visit bebopbeat.threadless.com and throw us some woo. Will your order arrive by Christmas? Absolutely not, because that's tomorrow. Anyway, here's the episode. Hi, my name is Lauren Fates, and I'll stab the beef off ya. And I'm Jamie Sanchez. We can be friends for only 10,000 Wulongs. Are you ready for the beat? I'm ready for the beat. Hello, hello, bounty hunters. Thanks for joining us again for another episode. Today we discuss Dog Star Swing and meet a real celebrity. I'm so excited. That's right. We're meeting Ayn himself, Charlie the Corgi, one of two corgis to play Ayn in the live action. And as much as we'd love to just put a microphone in front of Charlie and let him take it away, we are getting help this week from Rosie and Steph. That's Charlie's trainer and mom. But before we get there, For the first time in a long time, I feel like we have an announcement. Merch drop announcement. We're both really excited about this one. I am ready to spend like maybe a grand if possible to buy the Cowboy Bebop Whiskey. This is a blend of six different whiskeys in a limited edition run by one of the smallest distillers in Japan. The special collector's edition comes with this really sweet whiskey glass that I just, I need it in my collection, which has like a swordfish etched at the bottom. Actually, scratch that, I need two. And I need like three bottles of whiskey, one for my cabinet, one for Gabe's whiskey cabinet, and then one for actually trying to see if this is actually good whiskey. What about one for me? I guess oh, I, I have to get split my the third own. one. I was thinking <laughs> of you. Okay. I love a gimmick whiskey. Uh, I love a lot of whiskey, but back in the day, the Game of Thrones whiskeys, I tried as many as I could. They came out with one for every single house. And the thing about it is I I didn't love that campaign. It didn't necessarily feel like all of the whiskeys were directly inspired by the characters. Like, I'm very fond of Daenerys Targaryen, and the Targaryen one tasted like apples. I don't know the connection there. But in this case, they're mixing six different components of characters from Bebop into one bottle, right? It's not different ones. Correct. And like Jet's supposed to be like represented by an Islay whiskey, something like really peaty. And Faye's supposedly represented by this really sweet white wine kind of whiskey. And I can just see this clash right now. Like, this is why I don't need a whole bottle to myself. You need to share this with me. <laughs> yeah, I want to try it because it does sound like when you go to the McDonald's and you hold the cup under the soda fountain and you push all of the buttons. It's got to be a lot of notes in there. Yeah, yeah. And what also threw me off is that both Ed and Ein are represented by whiskey. In addition to the Bebop, the Bebop is the mysterious sixth character, which is a 30-year whiskey aged. So as much as I agree that the Bebop is a character, and I find that very clever, 
do not give whiskey to dogs. Don't associate whiskey with dogs. Don't give it to children either. So it was a weird, weird decision, but I am all for it. Take my money. I need it now. If we manage to get our hands on some, we will tell you how it is. And in turn, listeners, if you get some, we want to hear all about it. Share your photos with us. Oh, I can imagine it now. We have like a whole episode just on the whiskey review and it's us shit talking the whiskey. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe we'll love it. I'm hopeful. Wait, I said that before. This sounds familiar. It does. It sounds an awful lot like the mental gymnastics you were trying to do when the Netflix show was on the horizon. And here we are. We're talking episode three, Dog Star Swing. And I think we're ready to get into the bulk of the episode, yeah? We sure are. Dog Star Swing, by the way, I think for a lot of people is the episode that decides whether or not you are really on board with the live action. For me, one especially, and also two, still kind of stuck to some of the old formula. We got that direct opening from knocking on Heaven's Door. We're getting to see our characters' relationships with one another. And then Dog Star Swing, they literally aim a shotgun at some dogs. And this episode also contains the most violent scene of all of Cowboy Bebop and... You're either going to be on board or you're not. This episode opens with Spike walking over to a sushi truck and we meet Sushi Dude. I don't know what his actual name is, but in my notes, he's Sushi Dude. And Sushi Dude works for Anna. Spike says some secret words. I hear the sake here on Mars is only good when it rains. And Sushi Dude hands Spike a note that says vicious nose. It's nice to see that Spike has some connections still that he can go to, like we established in episode two. But we never really get to see this kind of like undercover spike, like his past life and Thursis. And this is what this whole episode is about, really. Even though I think it's kind of over the top that the note is on some paper that attaches to chopsticks. I thought that was like a lot of effort to go through. There's a lot to like in this scene. I really appreciate that the music appears to be diegetic. I explained the meaning of that in our movie episode, and they did it again here, where Spike takes off his headphones, and the soundtrack of the show becomes muffled as if the background music was what he was listening to on his headphones. I think it's a very clever editing trick. I also really like the smirk and guitar riff that happens when Spike sort of drops the code word and the sushi guy realizes just what he's dealing with. That sort of self-assured, shit-eating grin, that's the Spike I was looking for. I liked it a lot. And one more observation, Spike offers this guy 100 wulongs for information And I don't think 100 is actually a lot. I don't think that's a viable bribe in this universe. No, I'm surprised Sushi Dude wasn't like insulted. (laughs) So we open on the Bebop with Jet watching a commercial for a Walking Sally doll. This is essentially a Cabbage Patch clone, which I find terrifying. Uh, And this advertisement says we can be friends for only 10,000 Wulongs. I love everything about this kind of cut. Uh, It really establishes the need to get the money for Jet's doll for his daughter. It also ties in really nicely with like brain scratch in the anime. Uh, It has this texture of like as seen on TV that is just so comical and so fitting with this world. Uh, I adore it, but I hate walking Sally. Let's be clear. Yeah, she's very ugly. 
she's clearly Cabbage Patch inspired, like you said, but her face is like smushed a little smaller on her skull. And she doesn't walk, by the way. We never see her walk. And anytime she shows up in this show, she's not in a box. She's just a loose doll. And something about that is creepy to me as well. So are we supposed to get that this is a joke? Is she ugly because that's funny? Or does the show not realize they made a hideous doll? Have you seen kids' toys nowadays? Some of them are real terrible. I'm sorry for all of you who loved brats in the 90s, in the 2000s. Those things were kind of hideous. <laughs> you know, the, the Bratz dolls didn't stick with me, but the Monster High dolls, which were the same sort of category of fashion doll, but they were monsters, I loved those. I was here for that style once they became like werewolves and vampires and stuff. Uh, anyway, this TV commercial was one of my opportunities to do a look in the background. This is such a huge list, you guys. All of the toy stores fly by where Walking Sally is available. And you can tell the writer's room just rift and rift and rift. And these include several pop culture references. So if you would please indulge me. Toy Vey, This Knee World, Toys We Be, The Waymark Elf Shop, The Let's Go Store, Mrs. Flynn's Toy Emporium, Furbalicious Playthings, Berkey's Best Bits and Bobs, Humes and Sons Universally Acclaimed Toys, Dose, Cards, Games, and Toys Shop, The Toy Barn, The Dragon's Dungeon, G.I. Wish I Had More Toys, No Kidding Toys, Maggie's Magic Mart, Mia Moose, Matilda's Emporium, PNC's Warehouse, Toys and Things, Toys, 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 Toy Meets Girl, Tharsis Trinkets, Overtoyed, Inside the Toy Box, Toy Stop, Cat Killing Curious, Nickety Nackities, Add a Toy, Oh Toy, Enjoy a Toy, The Toys Are Back in Town, He Fell in Love with a Toy, and About a Toy. Those last few get really, really, really into movie references, and I think they put them last on purpose, so maybe you wouldn't catch them before the camera cutaway. Oh, I need a drink. <laughs> like Jet, I couldn't turn the TV off in time as you were listing all those. <laughs> <laughs> also in this moment, Spike is eating noodles out of a box, and I think that's an original brand of noodles, maybe an original restaurant. But it has this octopus mascot, and I think it's inspired by takoyaki, which often has like an image of an octopus and a headband on. But this didn't strike me as any specific one. I did, however, learn that Akashi City in Japan has a mascot called Papa Taco. So now you know about that. It's very cute. Just go look it up. So this scene stays a long time. We are here on the bebop for a long time. And the purpose of the scene is for Spike to actively sabotage Jet's effort to leave Tharsis so Spike can get ahead of Vicious in some way. He says, do you want to give up on Kimmy's happiness? And like, that's a dig to use. Like, I've never seen Spike in the anime to use some kind of emotional artillery to get what he wants. So I felt that was a little out of character. But then they follow up with a true bromance moment. And Lauren, will you indulge us with that? Because I believe you were the first person to bring this to my attention. Yes. So I think I watched this first. And what I texted the group, and this was in a loving and admiring way. Let me say that as clearly as I can. I found this positive. And Jet threatened Spike by saying, I could put my whole fist up your ass. And Spike's reply is, well, and that would feel really good, but would it solve anything? And that is graphic. That that goes beyond bromance. I swear all the BL fic writers out there screamed simultaneously when they watched that part. <laughs> <laughs> 
This episode brings out a lot of Spike traits, and I like some of them more than others. So to your point about Spike being sort of a saboteur, I've never known Spike Spiegel to pretend to care about something to get ahead, and I found that pretty crappy of him. It's a bad friend, a bad partner. But when it comes to a fist up the ass or later the dominatrix we meet or the visual we get of him nestled between two giant animated breasts, this spike is very sex positive. And I think it's making it clear that, yes, while he's in love with Julia and that's his one and only in this series, Spike still gets some elsewhere. I absolutely love this, too, because uh, the music ramps up and we don't go anywhere. Spike has successfully convinced Jet to stay here. Uh, He says that, hey, there's a a bounty here right on Tharsis. We can catch him. This is easy money. And Jet says he has to call someone named Woodcock. And at first, Spike has got this like, Woodcock, I hope that's a person. And we get a hologram visual of Woodcock coming onto the scene. And let me be clear, I absolutely love this woman. Everything about this scene is it's just so charming and over the top and like cringy, but in the funny way to me. And I bring it up because many fans actually thought that this is the, the part that proves that the bebop writing was poor. And I want to say to you, nope, nope, I'm the person laughing her ass off at the fisting joke, at the woodcock, like just kind of pouring over Jet. Jet being embarrassed that he likely had some sexual relations with this woman. Everything about it and like Spike's shit-eating grin in the background. Absolute chef's kiss. I'm here for all of it. Yeah, Spike in the background makes me laugh every time I watch this Woodcock scene. One thing that did stand out to me was that Woodcock refers to Spike as Junior. She asks, you got a name, Junior? And I think that kind of flies in the face of the deliberate choice we made to hire older actors. This woman is not a spring chicken. She's definitely mature, but I don't think she'd be calling someone John Cho's age junior. I think it's written more as if it was anime Spike that was sitting right there. There's another line in this conversation that the fandom has debated a lot. Uh, Jet suggests he's being blackmailed, and Woodcock says, yes, Jet, you are black and you are a male. Uh, It's been thrown around that that might be racist or insensitive in some way, and I don't read it as, I'm blackmailing you because of the color of your skin. I'm just definitely reading it as, like, he's her type, and I suppose... She could have put it differently, but I just want to make sure that I'm reading it how you are reading it. That's how I read it. Uh, I just read this woman as like real thirsty. She's just not really concerned with what Jet has to say. She just wants a date at all, period. (laughs) And to be fair, I do want to add that, yeah, having someone's race as your quote unquote type is problematic. So I can see where some of the criticism of Woodcock comes from. What is Woodcock's actual job when she says clients are up her crack about the unknown male bounty who's wanted for armed robbery and assault and murder? She already knows more about him than other people. What would you say is her profession? 
I believe she's an informant, and that tracks with uh, Jet's history at the ISSP. It's likely he had to contact her on multiple occasions before this in order to get the info he needed. And she says, like, she hasn't seen him after all these years, and he's been out of the game, supposedly. So this all seems to fall in line with what the live-action canon is writing. I really am starting to come around to like the technology they use. There's like a BlackBerry-esque phone that is kind of a do-all piece of technology that they all carry, and she has one. When she pulls it out, you can see Jet on her contact list, and the other contacts on that list are Marigold Futura, uh, Ishayo Susuko, and Ayori Nabel. Marigold Futura, in particular, stood out to me as familiar, and it was already in my Google search history, and so I'm pretty sure these were background names, or at least that one was, from in the anime, and I looked it up once before. This scene also lends itself well to seeing more of the bebop, and I gotta say, I still love the set. I still think it's great. Uh, I appreciate how roomy everything feels Uh, but still the closeness that everyone gets on screen. Uh, There's really nice texture in the background. It just still feels like this dilapidated piece of shit, but home somehow. I'm really glad you brought that up again. Ever since we got asked at our live show about Dutch angles, I've been really trying to figure out why that choice is made so often. And in this episode, I decided it was because they desperately wanted to show you the sets. So in one of the Dutch angle scenes in the kitchen, that angle allows us to see all these pots and pans hanging from the ceiling in a sort of fun kitchen organization way that many of us do in our own homes. And then when Spike sits down the noodle box, he sets it in the foreground of the Dutch angle where we can read it. And similarly, there's an angle where we see a bird like embroidered or painted on the back of a chair. And it's, I think, reminiscent of the back of Jet's vest in the anime. And so this show is, I think, positioning the camera to just make sure you can see what they packed into the room. I think maybe they overdid it because it's becoming like a stereotype joke in the fandom, like how many times they tilt the camera. But it goes back to my assertion that I just think these people loved Cowboy Bebop so much that they're like, pull the camera out and tilt it. We got to get the bird in there. The scene still hasn't ended. (laughs) Now that Woodcock has left, uh, Jet has his new footage and Spike joins him on the couch. This is where he learned that Spike can read lips, which I think is fitting with his character profile in the anime as well. And that's the other part about Spike. While we get this enhancement the Zoom enhancement of uh, Spike's personality where he reads lips, he doesn't know what a face changer is. No, and I'm going to do a little bit of a reach here because I'm trying to tie this into something else I wanted to talk about too. A lot of stuff on this show seems to happen for no other reason other than the plot needed it to happen or to make someone laugh. And both of those can be a great reason to write a script a certain way. I I can't fault that sort of on paper. But this episode is full of moments where just something happens conveniently, like Spike can read lips, but he doesn't know about this other technology. Uh, An example comes later when he drops his gun 
And I didn't see any reason for him to drop his gun or not go after it, considering the bounty was headed for the roof. But the show wanted a fight scene with no guns. So they're like, whoop, better make him drop it somewhere. This carries over to the dialogue. I've said a few times, I love the dialogue on this show. It's so funny. It's so clever and quippy. But it's really starting to hit me here on my third rewatch that everybody is quick-witted and everyone is telling the same types of jokes. Uh, There's an article that is not a friendly one, but I think was still very fascinating to read. It's on Vice, vice vice.com. And it's called something like, why does everyone on Netflix's Cowboy Bebop talk this way? And they coin the term Whedon speak, as in the sort of Firefly-esque, Marvel-esque quipping that is popularized in Whedon films. It's now popping up everywhere as like a normal way to write a conversation. So when Woodcock is like, see you on the Chianti side, that's not necessarily something a person would say. But everybody on the Bebop says things that maybe somebody wouldn't necessarily say. They almost have an identical sense of humor. Yeah, I find that a little off-putting. Like the scene that follows this where Spike and Jet are talking about Doc Holliday, it's just kind of thrown in there for no reason. Like just an anecdote that Jet knows to get him to talk about being a cop and and why cops make silly nicknames for people. So I don't feel like it enhances much of the story at all. But then we get into Spike's knowledge of Betty's boop and Betty's bottom. Of course, Spike would know this info. In particular, I enjoyed how he kind of quipped here and the editing did some kind of overlay, right? They, they slide in these panels of Betty's boop and Betty's bottom to give you a sense of what that scenery looks like with the Quimby side and the Cypress side look like. And it's those kinds of details that I kind of want more of. I want more show and less tell. I agree. The editing in this episode gets creative a couple of times. That was my favorite use of it. My least favorite use of it comes later when we transition to Julia hanging out at Anna's. There's this sort of split screen of her singing in the past, and then it shares sort of half the screen with Julia today. This is this is maybe making it about me when it's not appropriate to do so. But when I was in college, I took a video editing class. And our final was to edit clips from the show Angel, as in Buffy the Vampire Slayer Angel. And I did the most like colorful flashy editing job just to show like I can do color fades, I can do wipes, I can make things creatively transition from one person to another. The music cues are going to be super weird. And my professor told me this was a very young and ambitious final. But if you were hired to edit this scene, it's so unusual that they would have fired you. So long story short, I find these editing choices creative, but sometimes maybe a little bit immature. And I hope we get to talk to somebody who was behind that, who actually planned that to be. To your point, though, I thought that this particular edit where we're seeing the bebop and talking about these two brothels and they cut over to the street and now Spike and Jed are there. I felt that was very smart. That's the kind of thing I wanted to see more of through the show. Um, It didn't 
necessarily take me out of the action. It was just an interesting way to cut over from the bebop to now the street without having to show the actual transit. And now that I say that, the anime showed us lots of transit, but the live action tries not to, probably for budget reasons. One of the things I do remember you saying about the anime all the time was that you had the very strong belief that choices were made in the animation because they were cool. And I think that's happening here, too. Sometimes the cleverness serves the story. And sometimes I think someone just thought this would be cool. Like the word porn being lit up in the background of a couple of these scenes. That, to me, doesn't serve the scene at all. It's just there because someone was like, it would be really funny if the word porn was there. How cool. And I I think I've maybe aged out. I've aged out of the cool ads. (laughs) You say that now, but someone's going to come back to us later and be like, look, in episode 17 at blah, blah, blahs, they had the word porn and neon. I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, no, I watched it on Cartoon Network. They didn't leave the porn in. Oh, my bad. (laughs) To be fair, though, whoever had to execute on these neon signs, you're doing a great job. I love the word porn and neon. Here comes another example of sometimes the plot just does something because we need it to. Jet opens up to Spike really quickly, just over the phone, like while they're scouting about his past and his brotherhood with Chalmers and homicide and blackmail. He really like word vomits some of his past anguish at a time when I don't necessarily feel like it was asked for or appropriate. But someone just was like, we have to have Jet give some information about his past. So there it is. Uh, Just to go back to some of our old themes, if a quick stakeout talk with your friend makes you like trauma dump like that, go to space therapy, Jet. And Spike's response, quote, ever think about putting a bullet in a guy like that? That's not anime, Spike. That's definitely more of an aggressive response than I would expect. I certainly expect him to be weighing his options regarding what he should do to Vicious, because Vicious is the one person in the anime that Spike would, I think, proactively go after if it meant putting the past to rest or finding out what's supposed to happen in their future. That said, I agree. I don't think he'd be like, would you kill your shitty old partner? That's not how he would frame that decision. No, and that's what's fundamentally changed the energy of the live action to the anime. The anime, as we've discussed before, is more about just living in limbo, right? We're just between jobs. It's a freelancer's life. You know, we got to take it easy, play it cool, and make sure we eat. But this live action added this element of, of danger and heightened sense of awareness to Spike. Like, he's on edge this entire episode because Vicious is out to kill him. and. It fundamentally changes his character in ways that I'm just not gelling with. So Spike gets to threaten, we can do this the easy way or the fun way. Hakim chooses the fun way by not allowing himself to be taken by a bounty hunter, and we end up on the roof. The music cues here were very fun. I liked the soundtrack. All of these songs felt like Andy songs to me, though. There was this sort of Old West boing, 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 horse sauntering. I don't know what you call that sound effect. 
And then there's a lot of whistling. I'm sure this is a moment where I just sound like a person in a tinfoil hat, like drawing a diagram in a basement. But I feel like this was written for Andy content, and then there wasn't any. Maybe it's just there to sound like an old Western, and that's fine. You hit on a point that strikes me in pretty much every episode. I go, wait, no, that that music's for someone else. That's Gren's music. Or that's music we only hear on Venus. Like, why are we here on this planet? But that, I have to sit back and recognize that I am the obsessive person who listens to the soundtrack just for fun on the regular. You know, people who are listening to Yoko Kano's music for the first time would never make these associations. When I do that, I do feel that the music that they chose, the needle drops that they chose to highlight, do enhance the action or the mood of the set and the plot as it is. If you are a person who obsesses over the anime, oh, Jamie, I caught such an amazing costuming Easter egg, and I really wanted our podcast to be the people who revealed it, and I found out that it's already been revealed. But you all at home need to know I found this by myself and figured it out by myself. Spike's suit is fastened with two buttons, and on those buttons is the kanji for water. So like, be like water, there it is. And the camera zooms in on that when Spike goes to like pull a pipe out of that scaffolding and gets stuck. The camera shows us those buttons and is like, hey, Lauren, pause here. We did this for you. So yeah, unfortunately for me, interviews on Screen Rant and IGN, the costuming department already revealed this detail. They weren't going to wait for someone like me to scope it out. So if I'm going to get into my last rant about how this is not true to Spike Spiegel, (laughs) Spike Spiegel would never light a cigarette while his partner was doing all the heavy lifting. That felt like such a Marvel choice to me in writing. Very rude, Spike. How could you do that? Jet saved your ass. You almost fell again for the nth time. Yeah, I guess if you want to get that granular into Spike's live action personality, that didn't bother me necessarily. But hearing you say it, I agree with you. Spike lights up in moments of hopelessness or at the very least when he can no longer control the situation. And he could help Jet in this moment. And so by taking a break and pulling out a cigarette, he's burdening that other person in a way that that move doesn't burden people in the animation. Well put. I would agree with that. Um, I would also say that Jet's preoccupation with the doll also puts him at odds with what he's telling Spike, like, hey, why aren't you here for me? We have a job to do. But Jet is just fully checked out in this episode because he's he's trying to get this walking Sally for Kimmy. I find it's a weird subplot, and I don't know how we're supposed to take it following the episode where he's just berating Spike for not being there. It does sort of prove very quickly, though, that Spike doesn't actually give a damn about Kimmy's happiness. Because if he's able to hold up that doll that got run over by a car and dropped in the water and be like, maybe you could just give her this one. Spike, you've blown your cover. (laughs) Now it's clear (laughs) that you're not on the same wavelength about getting this poor girl a doll. You don't actually care. You told us so. No, Spike is more preoccupied with seeing what Mistress is up to and not being a cheap bastard. Let me be clear, I am all for this version of Spike as well. I find it really interesting that he's well-versed in the brothel scene on Tharsis and that, 
he knows how to work his way around uh, this particular section in the city. That goes hand in hand with what else that the live action is adding to him. But the juxtaposition of him like laying across the naked lady while the walking Sally doll falls from the roof of the building to the street. I found that a very weird message that the writers were trying to tell us. And I couldn't quite pinpoint what the message here was. Like, is it this kind of commentary on maturity or is it just because it looks cool? I don't know, but it felt very forced and I don't think it added much. Yeah. When we were talking about this episode as friends just days and days ago, I remember you saying that, that these sexualized adult breasts next to this like symbol of child innocence was kind of rubbing you the wrong way. And I'm willing to entertain that it wasn't thought through. Like, maybe these were two separate moments. Let's have the doll fly off the roof. Let's have Spike nestled between two titties. And maybe they didn't even realize how they'd be together. I don't want to believe that that's true. I want to believe it was more thoughtful than that. But sometimes the simplest explanation is the right one. I can't say with the amount of money the show had and the amount of eyes it had, like hundreds of people worked on this. Someone said this was what we were doing and other people said, okay. And I have to keep reframing myself as I watch the show because that is true of the very next scene. Yep. Here we are at my least favorite scene in the entire show. Uh, And that's saying a lot because... The episodes that I liked the least, I have two. They are yet to come. This wasn't one of them, but this scene is so vile to me that I I basically have left the room every time it's come on since my first watch through. So Shin and Lin accompany Vicious to the Sinchi plant, and uh, Vicious has been told to close down operations. His side hustle on red-eye manufacturing is kaput. And he's not going to do any of his manufacturing workers any favors. It's time to slaughter them. I found this scene absolutely gratuitous and excessive. It felt like the objective here was to feel very like Quentin Tarantino and, you know, really give you a sense of how terrifying Vicious is. But we're seeing a lot of naked bodies. We're seeing a lot of violence. I'm not certain that this enhanced the story in any way. I wanted to critique it for how maybe the set was designed, but I couldn't get over the content. I think you can cut this entirely and you'd have a better show. I've already gone on my rant about shock imagery in Cowboy Bebop twice, perhaps, before now. So just know that I agree with you. But there are other components in this scene that I couldn't really get behind either. Vicious makes a joke about like, Don't worry, we'll keep them on the payroll and give them nice houses until this all blows over. And then he laughs because he's cartoonishly, inhumanly evil. That again, that's just not a way people talk. But we have to know Vicious is so bad that they give him this truly Dr. Evil making his henchmen laugh along with him sort of moment. He also gets an opportunity to show us that he really cares about Julia. I really would have liked to have seen a Vicious that does love his wife, and it's complicated for her because he's abusive but also does nice things. And this Vicious is none of that. There's no room for complication about who he is or complex feelings from his victims. He's like, 
don't forget to get Julia her chocolate. And it's not because he loves her. It's it's just, again, cartoonishly sinister and snide, this whole moment. We cut over to Anna's, uh, where we get that weird Julia flashback. And uh, Anna's there to essentially try to convince Julia to leave Vicious. Through the course of their conversation, you can tell this isn't the first incident that's happened between the two of them. Uh, It's clear he's serially abusive towards her. And she expresses how trapped she's feeling and how trapped Anna feels too, right? If it was any other man, she'd have clawed his eyes out by now. We also get an establishing shot where Julia sees the bottle of Kudo and Anna says she was feeling nostalgic. The scene was short. I think it served its purpose um, just to get Julia some screen time ultimately. So for one, I recommend people turn on their subtitles on Netflix, even when it is an English show, because if you are reading the things they are saying, you will catch things you didn't catch before. This was the first time I caught Vicious calling all of those naked people Fugees, meaning they're refugees that are here that he has essentially, I guess, kidnapped and is torturing them. What are they refugees from? Is it potentially the gate accident and Earth? I'd love to hear more about that if that's what they're talking about. The Anna and Julia scene, I really liked, even though you're right, it was short because it builds up the bond between those two women and explains why in the anime, in the real folk blues, Annie might be so happy to see Julia. They're clearly very close. And I liked seeing that relationship get colored in a little bit more. That's when this flashback stuff and all of this extra syndicate information is really helpful when it adds to something that happened in the anime and it gives you more satisfying story. It doesn't work all the time. We know that it doesn't. And I also think this same scene falls on its face when Anna is just like, you have the power, you control your own destiny, get away from him. Maybe it is a commentary on how these sorts of conversations go in real life, but I can tell you with certainty, as the victim of Vicious's abuse, Julia definitely doesn't hold all the cards. She doesn't have all the power or control her own destiny. If she ran from this man, he would come for her, and Anna knows better. 100% agree with you there. Sometimes this show writes in such a way that it feels like the mid-2000s. I feel like maybe I'm looking for more advanced or expert opinions or, or new insights on relationships that I've seen in previous Western stories. And I'm asking a lot of this show. <laughs> They are trying to have nuanced conversations about everyone's PTSD and how strenuous life on Mars is in or life in this solar system altogether. But it feels like the nuances to that conversation is are really missing. Maybe they got cut on the editing floor or maybe the writers just were there to pose questions and not answers. But you're right. I would love to see a more realistic take on what Anna thinks Julia can do to get away. So chronologically, uh, we're back at Betty's bottom. Jet mentions he's only seen Kimmy five times at most in the last seven years, which is her entire life. So this clearly this doll is a big fucking deal, right? And of course, he's short on Wulongs in order to buy it. 
Spike mentions he's broke. He's only got seven, which I found is a really funny exchange. But you're right. It was pretty cruel of Spike to mention that he had faith in Jet and it made him go broke. I want to ask you a question about this moment because I've seen more than one fan upset that Jet Black, who is a black man, was made out to be an absentee father in this show. On one hand, yeah, that's a negative stereotype. It's inappropriate. It's not cool. But then I started looking for it in the text, and I think Elisa keeps him away on purpose. I didn't get the impression from this episode that, like, he could be there more often. He just isn't. There are a couple of words exchanged where I think he's been asked to not come around. I think in this world, he's an ex-prisoner. He doesn't have a good record. And not like Anime Jet had a fantastic record, but he didn't serve time. And that, again, is another Black stereotype that does a lot of harm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Even if the absentee dad thing is like actually Elisa's call, making this character formerly incarcerated and having to deal with the effects of his life based on that. Maybe we didn't need to add that. There's a lot about this whole backstory. (laughs) I don't think Jet needed, uh, and we'll get to it. (laughs) Spike realizes that he can keep the con going. He says that Hakeem definitely has a regular girl. He says, I mean, I do. I mean, I would. Uh, Absolutely love that moment. You don't go to Betty's bottom and not get bottom. Also love that. (laughs) We cut over to Hakeem at the Atmo farm. And this is the first time we see dogs. In fact, it's been a long time to be on Dog Star Swing and finally get to the plot of what actually Hakeem is doing. This scene shows us that a, a very advanced crate has been unlocked and is opened. And all the fans are going, yeah, Ein, Ein, we're going to get some Ein time. Can't wait to see Ein. That crate that Ein was in that opens up, that was one of those moments where I'm like, that number means something. I'm sure that's an Easter egg. And it is. I can't take credit for this. I found it on Reddit. But the number that goes across the crate is the nuclear launch codes from a movie called War Games. One could say on its face, yes, that is a War Games reference. But I also call it a Ready Player One reference because the film War Games is so present in that book. And Ready Player One, which I did not like reading, is basically hundreds of pages listing video games and movies and characters and quotes that our main protagonist likes. And with all of the hundreds of Easter eggs jammed into Cowboy Bebop, this reference made me go, oh, we're doing Ready Player One. To its benefit or to its detriment, apparently. What else we're doing is uh, supposed animal cruelty. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Angela here. Uh, our editor, who viscerally reacted to this scene. I kind of cringed a little bit when Hakeem was lining up the dogs to shoot them, but Angela had a whole moment. And I think Angela was hoping that maybe this was listed on Does the Dog Die? Because there are moments where viewers can be just completely off-put by the material they're watching, especially in this instance. Yeah, I truly feel that episode three is when you're going to decide as a viewer if you're going to like live action Bebop or not. The violent scenes, the sexy scenes, 
and the fact that they really play with your emotions by putting a shotgun on some animals, that's the level we're playing at. And if you could make it through this episode, I really think your feelings about it are a gauge for the rest of these 10 episodes. Angela literally said she was enjoying the show and this moment flipped it for her. It was like the rose-colored glasses came off and she was like, oh, they're willing to manipulate me through potential dog harm. I don't love that. And not only that, it was just a really crappy fake out too. Like some fans are defending this kind of plot because they don't actually harm any dogs, right? This is meant to be a long joke. Uh, because the reveal later is that Hakeem actually can't do it. He loves these dogs. They did nothing wrong. But still, to set us up as viewers to kind of absorb this scene, they really want you to be upset about Hakeem. They want you to make him be this evil villain that he isn't. And I find it very manipulative. That said, the work with the dogs was excellent, and we'll get to that a little later. Yes, until then, we'll talk about a different kind of work, and that is the dungeons where we meet the mistress. Hey, great transition. (laughs) I want to tell everyone at home that the Alabama Anaconda was not a sex act that was available on UrbanDictionary.com until the day after Cowboy Bebop dropped. And as of November 19th, there is now an Urban Dictionary entrance for the Alabama Anaconda. I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's uh, content that's too spicy even for me. But the Netflix folks can walk away from this knowing that they invented a sex act. I think that was the point. (laughs) We get a little bit more from Jet about how A bullet to Chalmers would be too quick and painless for that asshole. And he has some real visceral need to punch this guy's face in to match his face with a sense of brotherhood. We also get a little bit more of Sushi Dude. Spike uncharacteristically puts in an order for a sniper rifle. And the Sushi Dude's wondering, like, what do you want to do? Like, why mess with this eel? And Spike says, it's between me and the eel. I'm not certain how I feel about this. I mean, I guess we'll get into that. (laughs) For as much as I feel like we're dunking on this episode, it does give us a few crumbs of goodness. And yes, I would prefer we were shown instead of told. I think there was a higher budget, more sci-fi way to tell this story. But I do enjoy the reasoning behind why Hakeem stole all these dogs. He tells us, that when people were trying to escape the torn and dangerous earth, rich folks got to put their pets into escape pods and then humans were left behind. So when the planet was destroyed, these animals were put ahead of Hakim's loved ones. That really moved me. It was really sad. We're also here on an abandoned Atmo farm. And that adds a little bit of lore, too, to this world we don't get in the anime. What is an Atmo farm? What is it doing? I assume it, it's producing atmosphere. And I think this is the first real sense that we get that there are abandoned places on Mars. You know, it's been lived in long enough that people have built areas and then just disappeared from them because they were maybe lower income or not as lucrative. We've said that about the anime, too, how there are abandoned churches, like big, beautiful structures that already nobody wants or needs anymore. And that's cool. 
But we never got from the anime how expensive dogs are. They're apparently hard to sell. Perhaps the taxes are very expensive. And this episode doesn't really give us a reason for that. It was actually the opposite for Ayn in the anime. Ayn popped out of the suitcase and they said he was basically a rodent and you might as well eat him. Ayn was expensive, if you recall, because he was a data dog, not just because he was a dog. But that being said, we meet the good boy. He's here. He's in our lives. Yes, he is super cute. We love him. Ayn is played by Charlie the Corgi, Harry the Corgi, and then with some additional sound and foley from Shuffle, who we met in an earlier episode. I want to put a button in that because I also want to say that I actually enjoyed Hakim's actor. I think he did a good job with the material he was given. His uh, entire speech you mentioned, he's pretty convincing. And then the ISSP just blows him away. Yeah, Cowboy Bebop really said ACAB here. I know we've already talked about sort of the top level fact that the police don't want to pay out the bounties, so they get ahead of the bounty hunters. But there's this extra sinister layer added on that resonates a lot in 2021, which is the cops actually fabricate stories and fabricate evidence to make sure that like the story that comes out sides with the ISSP. In this case, they acted like Hakim had a gun on Spike and was about to blow him away. And that just wasn't true. But the authorities are the ones with the power. So who will be believed? It is, of course, the cops. Something else that's true to 2021, and I wish wasn't to future Bebop, um, is that we visit a suburb. The next scene, Jet is on Ganymede for Kimmy's birthday, ready to give her her gift. And we see a suburb. And there's just something so viscerally terrible about this to me. Cowboy Bebop, the anime, is a world where land is at a premium, right? We see these really dense cities because it takes a lot of time and effort to terraform a planet. On Ganymede, it's a water world. So we have these like pod cities where some of them are even abandoned because of a really terrible recession. But here we are told that Alyssa lives in a suburb in this really beautiful, sprawling, gated community, supposedly, with a lake. And she has this beautiful house, and she can't afford a dog. Maybe the taxes for a dog are too high. But they really play her as the mother that's struggling to keep the family afloat. I recommend going back, if you haven't already, and listening to our live episode on Discord, because I already ranted about Kimmy here and how I truly thought Kimmy was going to be Edward, but she is not. So because I already talked about that, I'll just say a couple of different things about this scene. To your point, Jamie, about her income being really confusing. Like she is portrayed like this woman who's having a hard time, but she owns this beautiful land. Why didn't she or Chalmers buy the walking Sally doll? It really seems like one of them would have. I think Jet convinced them, and this is just me excusing poor writing or making up just some kind of quick ideas. I think that Alyssa and Chalmers gave Jet the opportunity to be the father, right? Like this is the one thing she truly wants let him have this win. Chalmers is throwing him another bone. This is also where we see that Ayn is very likely more than he may seem. Kimmy reads the dog tag and says Ayn, but 
it doesn't actually say E-I-N. It says E-1-N and is a tag from Cheerius Medical, which is the facility from the movie. The last bit of Alyssa's house we see on Ganymede uh, is Jet walking out with Ayn because clearly they're not going to keep this dog. And kudos to Mustafa Shakir, who could just like muscle a 30 pound dog under his arm while walking down the set. Like that's a that's a feat I can't do. But I also wanted to mention that this scene was also juxtaposed with Spike's sniping scene and the cut between the two, like pairing the two felt very heavy handed. It's Jet reacting to his daughter, you know, getting to see her for the first time in a very long time. And then Spike getting to see Vicious for the first time in a very long time. And there was just a lot to unpack emotionally between these two scenes. I found them kind of working against each other in a way. Yeah, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but it just did feel like one of those moments where they did something because they thought it was cool or because they could. Like, wouldn't it be edgy and funny if she opens up the box and we cut to a gun and the people at home suddenly think maybe he gave her a gun? I didn't want to think that of Jet. I didn't either. And here we are. Speaking of gun, just as a concept, gun being funny, gun being popular bebop thing. The police did have a license plate that said 9MM771, and I read that as like 9mm, you know, the class of gun. And so the cop's license plate basically just said gun. Gun. (laughs) That's very funny. Police from that scene all the way up through Chalmers in this scene are just such dicks. So we've learned that Spike has his change of heart. Jet convinced him that, you know, through Jet's story of Chalmers, that vicious is just vicious. That's his very nature. And he shouldn't be punished for that. And this entire time, I was just screaming, just fucking kill the dude. Just put a bullet in him. There's no way. Like, if he's just going to be himself, then you know what the result is. Yeah, I'm completely on the same page as you here. I think Spike gets the wrong lesson out of this. It's not that he can't help it and so he doesn't deserve consequences. It's he can't help it so the murders will continue. Yeah, that was a real awful choice, Spike. Dumb decision. I get you have seven more episodes, but like you could have just saved yourself a whole lot of trouble. And then we close on the worst line I've heard in modern television in years, which is just vicious screaming, fearless. It felt me like, didn't Star Wars do that in a prequel? I didn't realize that was the line you were going to say because I was very taken aback by how Vicious calls Spike brother. We learn down the road that he means it literally, but I don't think there's any way to tell right now if he's being literal or not, if brother is a big reveal or if he's just being cute. And again, that's hard for me to kind of judge because I'm so biased, but uh, I I could see that this is where the writers wanted to plant Vicious feels some real betrayal. He's shocked that his brother would want to kill him with a sniper rifle. Why why come back? He should just die already because he's in my business. Vicious just being vicious. I get it. But the comical way he yells fearless. I can't get over it, Lauren. (laughs) Which makes it all the weirder that This is finally the episode that ends with the real folk blues playing over the credits. It's as if the writers were like, yeah, 
we punched it. We punched it so hard and did such a good job that this is the time we get to bring the theme everyone loves back. This is a vicious and spike story. Here comes the real folk blues. And Netflix doesn't let you hear it. Netflix is just like, next episode starting in three, two, one, and away goes the real folk blues. You really have to quickly pick up your remote and be like, no, watch credits. Let me hear it. So yeah, this episode had some real high points, had some real low points. I think you're absolutely right, uh, Lauren, when you said that this is a make it or break it for viewers. Um, I was fine on rewatch, but like, make it stop. (laughs) Oddly enough, I don't hate this as much as I used to. My first watch through of the live action, I was a real hater. Watching it again, I'm much more able to take it for what it is, but I have zero desire to watch it again. And I don't know how that's going to make our listeners at home feel, given that, like, we are the Cowboy Bebop show. But I'm going to stop consuming this particular Cowboy Bebop once we're through. That being said, I absolutely love all of the production work that goes on. You can really tell that everyone took their job seriously in this role. It's just things maybe were a little challenging for of diehard fans like us. So this episode is called Dog Star Swing. I know it sounds like I'm starting the conversation over, but I promise I'm not. I want to really dive one more time into why this episode is called what it is, because it's relevant to our guest. The Dog Star is another name for Sirius, which is the brightest star in our night sky here on Earth. The dog star is part of the constellation Canis, which means the greater dog, and there's no dog greater in Cowboy Bebop than Ayn. So it is the Ayn premiere episode. I guess in the end, it makes sense to call this episode Dog Star Swing. And in honor of Ayn appearing, we have welcomed Ayn himself to our show. Today, we are so excited to introduce Charlie the Corgi, Steph, his mom and manager, and Rosie Miles, animal trainer for film and television. Thanks for joining us on the show. Lovely to be here. We are so honored to have all of you here. Uh, Watson the Corgi has already met Charlie, can tell they're already best friends. Thank you for saying yes to being on our podcast. I think the first question we have is just how did you all get acquainted with Charlie? How did he come into your lives? So for as long as I can remember, I just really wanted a corgi um, and they're quite rare in New Zealand to come across. So um, I had to go through like a two-year wait list to, um, to get Charlie into my life and I had actually picked out his name before I got him. <laughs> um, and eventually when I did get him, Um, He was born on my settlement day of me purchasing my first house. And so, you know, all the stars aligned and he is just treated like an absolute king of my household. And he's just really receptive to training, which is just so amazing. Like he loves learning and he just loves food. So like you put those two together and he's just, yeah, he's an absolute queen. And I guess that's how we lead on to maybe you, Rosie, talking about how you met Charlie. Yes. So I was given a brief that we were shooting a show called Cowboy Bebop and we would need two corgis, a uh, main corgi and a double. 
who could also be a double for obviously days where maybe one corgi was off color or maybe they had different strengths. So I began a search for corgis. And as Steph said, in New Zealand, they're quite, quite rare. There aren't a lot here. So it was difficult sourcing the talent to go forward. Charlie came to my notice and really straight away I knew that I think I was onto something. Um, he, he had already got good command on him. Steph trains him really well. She's got all the good basic behavior on him. So I was super keen after I met him to sign him up. Uh, Rosie, perhaps you could speak to this on more of a general level. How do people's relationships with animals, maybe not just dogs, evolve when they become workers in the industry? So when we when we source an animal for a, a film project, we have to choose a, an animal that is going to be best suited to deal with the um, challenges of filmmaking. I, I think hugely being social, so an animal that's very sociable with people, preferably other animals, confident, definitely a must. So not fearful of, of even things like lightning because or thunder because on set you're going to get those elements and special effects. So making sure there's no real phobias. Foodie, as we put it, on every species is a must because it, it's the way we train. We use positive reinforcement. They get a treat for the correct behavior. So that's our tool for training, clicker training with a food reward. Obviously, having intelligence is a must, so the ability to learn. And then physically needing to be fit, obviously healthy, and hopefully a a nice-looking specimen for that species. I think during what I would call if I'm auditioning an animal, I, I look for all these different traits. And then... From there, basically, it's going to take time because until you have gained an animal's trust, you aren't going to be able to achieve what you need on set without that total trust from that animal. So what is an average day like for Charlie? Maybe Steph can tell us about at home and Rosie can tell us about on set. Yeah, sure. I mean, when he's at home, his day is not dissimilar to any other dog's day you know he will wake me up for breakfast by cuddling into me which I unintentionally trained but it's the best thing ever <laughs> and then um, you know at the moment uh, we're all kind of working from home so I spend my day with him he'll bring me toys I'll give him treats throughout the day and little scraps of my food that I eat um, and then come evening um, it's walk time and that is his favorite time of the day, apart from dinner time. Um, so, you know, we'll just go for a walk around our local surroundings or to a park. And then it's dinner time and face time of like, you know, my mum and dad so they can see their quote unquote grandchild. Um, <laughs> and then we go to sleep. It's, yeah, very basic. Rosie, perhaps you can tell us what Charlie's day like is on set? Well, Charlie's day on set starts with me rolling up in my. Toyota Hilux ute and um, picking him up 
He either sits on the back seat in his harness, strapped in, looking like Prince Charles, or sometimes he travels in the purpose-built pens in the back where um, Harry and Charlie have separate um, purpose-built pens in the back of the ute, which have ventilation and water and a bed. And off we go in the ute, arrive at set. Usually we'll go for a walk straight away just to have a little tinkle on the bushes somewhere. And then we may get a chance to go into the studio just to familiar with the scene we're about to shoot. Sometimes we may not. We may sit outside for a long time waiting. With Charlie, because um, to match Harry and Charlie, we actually had to make a decision how to match them. Charlie's got that beautiful white blaze down his face, and um, Harry has no blaze. So the decision was made very early in the piece that it is easier to apply brown human makeup to the white blaze, take it out, and then we've got two identical corgis. So Charlie goes into makeup usually about an hour prior to being needed on set. And I must say he rather likes makeup. He does sit there and he obviously gets treats during the process, but he actually knows the whole routine now. He almost you know, offers a paw when it comes to maybe a little tweak on the white sock on one leg. Then we get called, we'll go in, we may get a rehearsal. Sometimes we might shoot the rehearsal because that can sometimes be the best one. Um, definitely it's a bit of a judgment when I'll look at the scene, look at how we're doing it, and sometimes I'll say, you know what, if we shoot the rehearsal, we may get the best take. And we usually are in set or maybe on set for half an hour or so, usually break away again. There might be another gap and go back in, do different angles. Every scene obviously has numerous angles. When they're not on set, they have their bed, their water, they have their fan if it's hot, and lots and lots of walks in between shooting. So how else were Charlie and Harry maybe alike or different? And did they get to hang out at all on set or were they pretty much separated? Basically, before we were shooting Cowboy Bebop, we had months of training. So Harry and Charlie met each other months before the first shoot day. There was definitely a little bit of rivalry and it took probably, I would say, three weeks of maybe three training days a week to get them to actually settle down and start becoming friends. They were very competitive. Um, In fact, to be honest, I think there still is a competitiveness between them. They almost know when you come back to the ute to go on set. If you take one, the other one usually has a huge complaint to lodge that it should have been him. So yes, we have some moments of unhappy corgi that's not in that shot. Uh, they get on really well now. They, they definitely walk together. They're next to each other in their purpose-built crates in the, in the ute, but separated. They can then relax and really have a sleep. And I do find they sleep a lot. When they're on set, it's mentally draining. I think more draining than physical activity. And you'll find that they come back to the ute and they'll just settle down and go to sleep. And we have a sign on the ute saying, please don't approach them as 
of course, every crew member wants to pop past and say hi, which disturbs them. So all the crew know to just leave Prince Charles and Prince Harry quietly to be resting. So what can you tell us, just for the dog fans at home, what is Charlie's favorite toy, uh, favorite activity, and favorite food? So Charlie has this meter-long alpaca toy that has five squeaks in it, and that's his favorite toy. He has not destroyed it like all of his other toys, and he sings its lovely song every day for me. <laughs> when it comes to his favorite food, there's he will literally eat anything, um, but I think his favorite is definitely chicken, which I'm sure Rosie will agree with as well. And I really think his favorite activity is just going for a walk. He just loves exercise and getting out in, into the world. A corgi through and through, for sure. <laughs> Every corgi I've ever met has wanted to massacre the squeakers immediately. <laughs> yeah, they've little, they've got that predatory little nature where they, yeah, they, they need to go hunting. Truly. <laughs> yeah, so a squeaky toy is, is a prey. <laughs> and so they feel that they've, you know, caught that prey and basically destroyed it, probably bring it home for you to eat so they can be good providers. <laughs> so we wrote down what is Charlie's best trick, but you can interpret best however you want. Like that could be the cutest or it could be the most complex, however you want to answer. So I kind of interpret best as in like what he's good at and then my favorite trick. And to be honest, his best trick that he does is probably barking on command because he loves the sound of his own voice. <laughs> and um, and then my favorite trick that I think is his best one is what I call the on your side command. And that's the one that we taught him for the scene where Faye is dancing with Charlie. So just before he da she dances with Charlie, it's where she's talking about how she killed um, the bounty that she was after and she shot Charlie, rolls over onto his side. It's my favorite. It's best. I would have to say Charlie's most proficient at the speak command. I agree with Steph on that one. Um, for me, he was very good at targeting with his paws because they both had to learn to target, meaning put their paw where I wanted them to. So that, of course, worked in Swordfish when Faye steals the spaceship and she's trying to find the tracking button to turn off the tracking and Ein shows where the button is. Harry and Charlie are really good with the targeting. So I would say that's a, that's a very good trick that he's now got. And then secondly, again, both Charlie and Harry, very proficient, is being trained to cock their leg on command without passing anything, but literally just lift a leg as though they're cocking their leg. I would say that is probably the most difficult uh, of behaviors they had to learn. Steph, were you a fan of Cowboy Bebop or anime before you got this opportunity? Um, I had heard of Cowboy Bebop. It was through the gif of Ayn in Mushroom Samba, the one where he's bouncing um, down the road. Um, but I wasn't a fan before Charlie got the opportunity. Hearing about what happened on set with Charlie some days and things like that, I decided to give the show a go and I ended up really enjoying it. And then it just made me even more pumped for the live action to come out. 
And, you know, as a, as a 90s child, I loved Pokemon, the original, everyone's original anime, I'm sure, an introduction to it. In this house, we love anime. So, <laughs> yes, we are fans of Pokemon. So while on set, did Charlie gravitate towards any particular actor, maybe during filming? Who's sending him care packages later? He definitely had a great relationship with Danielle. Definitely. That was, that was a strong connection s- straight away. And it was a big relief to me because she has quite a lot to do with him. And he liked her immediately. She liked him immediately. And so that made shooting a lot easier when you've got an actor that, or actress who really does like dogs and got on with Charlie and Charlie liked her. You mentioned earlier that having two different dogs is beneficial because they have different strengths. What would you say are the strengths of each of them? And is there a scene where you just think Charlie really shines, like you were so proud of him? With Charlie, I think the scene that he was so good in, because he's very happy to be carried, and he was a good weight, actually, (laughs) was dancing with Faye where she's dancing with him and then just says, dip me. He was such a good boy that night. It was, it was you know, being picked up and danced with and put down because he was heavy. She had to put him down regularly and picked up and danced with. And he was so patient, so relaxed, which for me is a great thing, a happy, relaxed dog. That would be probably a scene that stands out for me. If you were asking me of the difference between Charlie and Harry, Harry is very go-getter. Harry does everything. If I ask him to do something, he's already doing it before I finish my sentence with an amazing gusto and energy. And sometimes that energy is too much and I need to have less energy or sometimes that energy is perfect and works for the, the scene. So Harry is a very, very energetic, go-get dog. Charlie will think about things a little bit more. He actually will assess momentarily, and then he will do it. And he does it very mindfully. So rather than hitting buttons all over the place, (laughs) Harry might be hitting four buttons in the space of a few seconds. Charlie will consider the buttons and then push a button. So there's definitely a a deliberateness about Charlie and his actions, which is just superb having those two two different energies and two different mindsets. It, It just works beautifully because you've got the one you need in that scene you can tap into. And I can assure you, you definitely need both those energies. Rosie, your expertise as an animal trainer is just so welcome here in this discussion. We know you have a long history of working as an animal trainer, say on Hercules, Xena, and The Last Samurai. And I was wondering, did you also work on the scene where Hakeem is hanging out with all those dogs in this episode? And how challenging was that to film? Yes, the scene with Hakeem. Uh, Yes, I've done all the animals on Cowboy Bebop. And um, that scene was challenging because that was quite a lot of dogs. I think we had 12 dogs and they had to all interact with him. And yet we didn't want any kerfuffles between the pack. 
for a pack of 12 dogs, you can have a few issues. It was a, a difficult scene and it was at night, so it was dark and we couldn't see outside of where we had the set lit. And beyond that was bush. So I didn't want anybody going for a hunt through the bush. We did have safety fencing up too, which was a backup. But it was difficult. We made sure that we worked with the actor prior to that shoot so that he could interact with the dogs and the dogs interact with him so that he was comfortable with them and they were comfortable with him. I did notice when we were shooting, because I was off camera pulling eye lines so that it looked like they were watching him unload the van. And I must admit, it gave me quite a lump in my throat at the true reaction of all those dogs who, when they were tied up and he held the gun towards them, there was just this moment where I swear every dog held its breath. And it was, I just thought, wow, do they just innately know that that's a weapon? So yeah, that was, that was quite a moment. But yeah, a, a, a difficult night, but we got there and I saw the finished scene and I was, wasn't unhappy with it. It looked, it looked good. Speaking of the way the scenes look when they're done, how did both of you feel watching the finished product and was it what you expected to see? I just, I loved the live action. Um, I'm obviously very biased to that um, because my quote unquote son is in it. I was very fortunate enough to go on set one night to help out. And that was where they filmed the cold open for uh, session eight. And so, you know, just seeing how everything kind of pulls together is just fantastic to me. And yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm very biased towards it. Seeing the finished product and the scenes up on on TV. For me, I always am critiquing. And sometimes I'll look at a scene and go, oh no, they didn't pick the best take. And I'll think that for me, that maybe there was a scene that I think the dog's performance was was perfect, but it might not have worked for them that the actors and everything else that goes into it, it's not all about the dog. <laughs> but um, so I must admit, before I can enjoy seeing a scene, I basically critique it and look at it and see how I could have done better. Or if I, goodness, but a bid that I see something that I don't like, that I'm like, oh no, I, you know, not, I'm not happy with that bit of makeup on Charlie's face or, or just something. So I'm probably very, very critical of seeing the end product and hoping that it's come out as well as I would hope. So far, what I've seen, I'm, I'm happy with. I haven't watched all the episodes yet, but I am happy with what I've seen so far. So that's fantastic. So on the show, we've been talking about how many dozens upon maybe hundreds of people who've worked on it have kind of dropped in their own flair or Easter egg in some way. Uh, if you have gotten to a point, what's your favorite Easter egg in the live action? For me, it's uh, in session four when um, Jet is reading the menu, uh, when him and Spike are at the restaurant finally eating some food, and mushroom samba is actually a menu item. Um, I saw that first uh, when I first watched it, and I was just like, ah, it's my favorite episode. <laughs> I didn't even catch that one. That one's so good. <laughs> it's so cute. 
we were shocked to see like Betty Boop being referenced and just things that weren't even Cowboy Bebop. So like, I know I myself while watching it was just, I was just like washed over with all of these different references that I just kind of had to zone out for a bit. Steph, we've been really surprised and delighted by the way you've immersed yourself in the fan community. You have a bunch of social media channels for Charlie. You hang out on the Discord as Einsworld. And you've done giveaways. You were even sweet enough to come to our live show. Thank you so much for that. What made you decide to dive this deep into people who watch Cowboy Bebop? And what are some of the things you discovered in the fandom? Well, I look at it as, you know, like to a person that I really look up to, if they were to come into a community and be part of that community, you know, like that, it just makes people's day. And it's really rewarding for me. You know, the fact that I can answer kind of as Ayn or Charlie and then people kind of go like, oh, my God, you've made my decade or you, I'm dead. You've made my life. You know, like that's just so rewarding. And it just makes me so proud of Charlie as well. Um, and I really realized that, you know, Reddit and Discord and like the Cowboy Bebop fandom isn't as bad as some people perceive it to be. You know, like I just everything's kind of got its own its own reputation. But, you know, most people are in the love of it for Cowboy Bebop. And everyone loves the cute dog in Cowboy Bebop. So <laughs> I'm very lucky that I haven't actually, you know, received or seen any negative comments like that. But yeah, it's just such a positive experience and as rewarding for me as it is for other people to have, quote unquote, Ayn or Charlie in, in the fandom. That's so endearing because we also know that Bo Billingsley hangs out in the Bebop communities for the same reason. So thank you for taking the time. It really does uh, encourage us and bring a little light to our day. So, well, we're wrapping up our discussion and we have to know first, Steph, what's next for Charlie? Oh, I wish I had a list of things to do, but he is on break right now. He's living his best life. Um, we're coming up into summer in New Zealand, so he's on his quote-unquote summer holidays. Um, hopefully, there will be season two when, whenever that may happen or if it may happen. And Rosie, when we started talking to you, we were amazed by your resume. Could you share with us, one, a couple favorite maybe movies you'd like people to go watch to see some of your training? And then two, any future projects you are allowed to talk about? Well, <laughs> projects that I've done. I must admit, there's a beautiful one. And because uh, Charlie lives in New Zealand, it might be nice for people to watch Hunt for the Wilder People. That's one shot in New Zealand. It's a beautiful showcase of New Zealand. Um, and I did the animals in that. And it is just, it actually is a really good film to watch. It, it's, it's fun. I think no matter who you were, you'd enjoy it. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's humorous, but a little bit serious. And beautiful cinematography and um, some nice animal action. <laughs> Other ones, Mulan. We did Mulan. That was that was epic. Did a tiny little bit of The Meg, which I'm not into shark movies, but I had to do the wee dog swimming out there in the ocean on a beautiful big gin palace of a boat with Jason Stratham. Uh, that was pretty exciting 
And another New Zealand series that we've just completed is Sweet Tooth. And that's that's looking looking good too. So I'd say hunt for the world of people. I may have missed something so epic that I'll kick myself later. But um, and then one other was a show called Only Cloud Knows, and that's Chinese director beautifully shot again, fantastic cinematography of New Zealand, and um, it will make you cry. Of warning. Take tissues. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. When I sob these days, it is like a downpour. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, oh, and also, I was going to say that Ch- Charlie and Harry keep getting put forward for other work as well. <laughs> they, they aren't just sitting around waiting. They're, they're, they need to keep working and keep getting out there and being on set. And there's other shows that need dogs. So they do get put forward for work. Whenever it's the appropriate role I see for them, they're put forward. If our listeners wanted to catch up with your work on social media or elsewhere on the internet, if you have any channels you'd like to tell us about, please share now. Um, yeah, I'll give the two corgis social medias. So um, Charlie's Instagram is um, underscore Charlie underscore the underscore corgi underscore. <laughs> There's a lot of corgis called Charlie out in the world, so it seems. And from there, you can find the link to his like Twitter, TikTok, etc. Um, and Harry's is Harry Corgi, and Corgi is with two eyes. Oh my goodness! I'm going to follow Charlie on TikTok right after this. I want to see it so bad. <laughs> it's my favorite, and it's very um, low profile, so it's it's great. Probably for me, it's just um, because Charlie has such a huge profile in social media. And I just want to say that um, totally Harry and Charlie are equal in how they're filmed. They're equal, equal in how important they are to the show. And pretty much 50-50, they would share the shooting of each episode. So because we haven't got Harry here or Harry's mum here talking, um, that you know it is really important to know that they are both super important to the show. Definitely. I kind of um, explain it to people that Charlie is Ayn and Ayn is Harry. There's no there's no Ayn without both of them. Yeah, so please make sure you go follow Harry. He's on he's just kind of come back to social media. So absolutely, one hundred percent. Well, that's all we have for you today on the Bebop Beat. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next week as we discuss Callisto Soul. Thank you for listening to the Bebop Beat. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bebop Beat. Our email address is bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com. The Bebop Beat is hosted and produced by Jamie Sanchez and Lauren Fates. Our editor and associate producer is Angela Geis. Our logo and art assets are by Kat Janda. 